chapters 8 through 10 all really focus on the same issue. The Corinthians are trying to uh, eat at these temples, these meals that are sacrificed to idols for them. It's not a spiritual deal. It's just a social thing. They want to be around their friends. These temples are the restaurants of their day. And Paul is saying no in chapter 8. He says you can't go because you might cause one of your brothers or sisters to stumble. He kind of uses love as a reason. Listen, this is not good for other people, so don't go. Then in chapter 9, he gives them an example of what it looks like to forego your rights. He says, I'm asking you all to forego some rights and privileges. Here, I've done the same thing. Here's what it looks like. Chapter 10, we looked a couple of weeks ago at verses 1 through 13 where Paul says, just because y'all have this great spiritual inheritance, this strong spiritual foundation, don't think that you can do whatever you want. He uses four examples from Israel's history and says they had just as much going on as y'all did. Spiritually, they were in the same boat as y'all. They were God's favored people, and he judged them for their behavior, and he'll do the same thing to you. So don't think that just because you've, again, experienced these wonderful things that somehow you're exempt from... uh, behaving according to God's standards. Today we're going to pick up in verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean anything? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You can't have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We closed a couple of weeks ago looking at this idea of God providing a way out when we're in a trial. We're in a difficult spot. God always makes a way out. We we, uh, live through trials. But we said if there's a temptation, we run from. There's no benefit in facing a temptation head on. You run away from that because the only thing that's going to happen there is bad. So through a trial, from a temptation. And so that's how Paul starts this. Flee from idolatry. You run away from that. God will make a way for you to get out if it's a legitimate trial. But what we're dealing with here is temptation to sin. You need to turn and run the other direction. And the Corinthians' response is going to be, what are you talking about? Idolatry, we've already established, if you look back in chapter 8, there's nothing behind these gods. We know they're false, they're fake, there's, they're, there's nothing there. It's, it's stone, it's wood. So how can you say that we are engaging or being tempted towards idolatry when we all know there's no God behind any of these things in these temples. And that's when Paul, this idea of participation, which is the key idea in this passage, comes in. He says, um, when you engage in these meals, you're participating with, that word is koinonia. You may have heard that word before. Kind of the basic meaning is to share in something with someone or to share with someone in something, however you want to say that. A couple of verses that might help you get a a feel for that. God who has called you into fellowship, there's that word with this son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. He's called you to share in something with his son. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness. Again, what, how does light and darkness, what do they have in common? What can they share together? 
I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, being like him in his death. Again, that idea of sharing in his sufferings with Jesus. You get the idea of that word. And what Paul is saying is when we take communion, which we're going to take in a little bit, we, are, we have koinonia, or we're sharing with Jesus vertically. We're sharing in the benefits of his death and resurrection. And we're sharing horizontally as well. That's his whole idea of one loaf. What he's saying there is there's a spiritual experience that we're all sharing together. It's not individual. There's corporately, there's something going on amongst us. And there's also something going on personally between us and the Lord. And the same thing is happening when you're going to these Temple meals, you're right. There is no God behind those statues. But there are supernatural beings. There are demons behind those statues. And this sharing that you're doing with Jesus, you're also doing with them. And this sharing that you're doing with us, you're also doing with those who worship these false gods. And you can't do both. In the Bible, idolatry is adultery. That's how it works spiritually. In the Bible, you'll see God presents himself as our husband. And so what Paul says is what you're doing is you're provoking God to jealousy. That might not be a word that you think of when you think of God. Jealousy has negative connotations for us. Kind of underlying that is this idea of zeal and desire and possession. So if I have zeal for Paul's stuff, that's envy. Zeal for my stuff is jealousy. And in a marriage relationship, it's perfectly legitimate for a husband to be jealous for his wife's attention or affection or faithfulness. That's, that's what you committed to when you said, I do. Same thing for the wife to the husband. And in this picture for us of God and us, that's what he's saying. I desire your faithfulness, your attention, and your affection. This koinonia that you have, that's only with me. And if you're doing that with these other false gods, with these demonic beings, then you're cheating on me, and that's going to provoke him to jealousy, which is not good for anybody. So that's kind of what's going on here. Paul's saying, you've got to get out of here. This is a temptation. It's not a trial. The way out is to turn around and run away. Why is it idolatry? Because in this meal that you're having, that in your mind is just a social thing, it's where your friends are, it's birthday parties, it's celebrations, just a social thing for you. Demons are actually taking advantage of that circumstance. They're active in those times. And this communion that is supposed to be reserved for us in Jesus, you're, you're having that same type of communion with demons. And the communion that's special among us as Christians, you're experiencing that same thing with these guys who are not. You're, again, you're cheating on the Lord, and that's going to provoke him to jealousy. So run away. That's kind of what's going on in this passage. I was thinking about this for us and trying to figure out, well, what is the... What's the connection point for us? There's not a lot of temples around. Most of you probably don't spend a lot of time sacrificing animals and going to these temple meals and doing that kind of stuff. So is there any point of connection for us? I thought of two. One, the uniqueness of God, exclusivity of Jesus. I would put both of those things together. We live in a world that says all roads ultimately lead to the same place. And some people say that with the best of intention. They say religion is tearing our world apart. Look at all these wars that are fought in the name of God. It's killing us as a people. If we're going to live together on this increasingly small planet, we've got to learn how to get along when it comes to religion. So all, let's just, y'all are all saying the same thing. 
You just have different expressions of it. Ultimately, all of these roads lead to the same place. There are other people who say the same thing with terrible intentions. They're trying to undermine kind of the uniqueness of these different faiths. But even in the best light, it's just not true. And that can be a difficult position for us to hold as Christians. You feel like a bigot. You feel narrow-minded. You feel like you're in the country club and everybody else is not. It's this, you're intolerant. We talk, you know, Jesus talks about this narrow road and we're going, oh, can it be a little wider? You know, and that's, it's hard for us at times to hold to this idea that God is different. That's part of what it means for him to be holy. It means he's other than everyone else. The Bible says God's looking for witnesses. He's not looking for defense attorneys. And so we don't have to defend what he says about himself. And it's what he says about himself. He says he's different. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 are really all about. It's God establishing his ownership over everything we can see and over everything we can't see. He's, I made it all is what he's saying. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 are all about. I made everything. That w- Therefore, I can do what I want with what I've made. Whatever you want to call this kind of middle level of gods with the lowercase g, they're in a different category than the God of the Bible, according to the Bible. He says, I made everything. I sustain everything. All power is mine. Therefore, any power that anyone or anything else has, it was given to them by God. They're not in the same class. They're not in the same category as him. He is utterly unique. This idea that the Corinthians have, that's 100% true. These things aren't gods. Paul's saying, you're right. They're not gods. I don't know what Allah is, but he's not in the same category as the God of the Bible. I don't know what Krishna is, but he's not in the same category as the God of the Bible. Buddha, whoever you want to put, fill in the blank, whatever those beings are, they're not in the same category as the God of the Bible according to the God of the Bible. That can make us squirm when we're talking, particularly to people who haven't said yes to Jesus because it makes us sound like arrogant jerks. I think if the people of God will demonstrate the character of God, then everybody will see the uniqueness of God. The uniqueness of God, that he is quick to forgive, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in love, that he's patient, that he's faithful, that he's gracious, that he's kind. All of that is unique to him. And if we will demonstrate that character to those who don't yet know him, then I think some of these other parts that can be a little trickier they can say you know what he's unique in all of his character so i can take yeah he is different than every other god the exclusivity of jesus is tied right on the back of that that's a hard one for us too that narrow is the way there's one door you know how do you what about people who've never heard there's seven billion people on this planet and you're saying you just your little group is going to make it into heaven what kind of loving god would set things up that way and there, again there can be that tension in us with trying to hold, be faithful to what Jesus said about himself, he said he is the way. With not, while not wanting to needlessly offend and turn off people who are still trying to figure out who he is and whether they want to get on board with him or not. Uh, to me, the exclusivity of Jesus, it's not God trying to, um, it's not God trying to be a jerk. It's not God trying to keep people out. Jesus is the only one who takes care of the problem. If you, somebody gave you a, script that if you followed to the letter you would live perfectly from march 11th 2012 
until you died. That would be wonderful. Then the issue for you would just become, what about everything between birth and March eleventh, two 2012? Who takes care of all of those things? These other religions, these other faiths, they all will say, here's a way to live moving forward. And we can probably find some points of commonality with them on the way moving forward. What none of them can do is take care of the past. None of them can deal with the problem that we all have, which is sin. Even again, if if we can agree on some major points of what it looks like moving forward, nobody else says, I'll take care of your sin problem. Only Jesus does that. That's why he is the way. That's why he exclusively says, I'm the Savior, because he's the only one who saves us. He's the only one who died on a cross in our place and whose blood forgives us of our sins. That's what makes him different. And if there's this idea that you have, of, well, there's a secret password, and if you don't know it, you don't get in. If the secret password is Jesus, he said, go tell everybody. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, he told all of us as his followers, you let everybody you meet know my name and tell them everything that I taught you. It's not this idea of saying how few people can get into heaven, how few people can develop a relationship with God, how many people can we get out, how exclusive can we make the club. Not at all. There's one way because there's only one who solved our problem, but the door is open to any who will walk through it. Again, he says, shout my name from the rooftops. Let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you, us, make sure everybody you know knows my name. And if people don't know my name, then get there and tell them my name. It's not this, God is not stingy with salvation. He's not stingy with relationship. He's, his desire is for as many who will to come to him under this idea that he is unique and that Jesus is exclusively the way. Second thing I was thinking about, this whole idea of participating with demons. It's a pleasant thing to talk about. Uh, I think, what does that look like for us? So Paul's getting on these Corinthians saying, you're participating with demons in this activity, which to their mind, again, is completely innocent. They're hanging out with their friends. In their mind, they may say, you know what, I'm trying to help introduce some of these people to Jesus. Why are you telling us we can't go? And again, this idea of participating with demons and what does that look like for us? Paul says in Ephesians 4.27 to not give the devil a foothold, and that might be a better picture for us. Not this idea of maybe necessarily having fellowship or sharing in something with the demonic, but giving the demonic a foothold or access points in our life. If you think of your mind and your heart as a house, the question this morning, are there any doors that are open, any windows that are cracked where the enemy can come in and go out? Everything you need to know about him is in John 10.10. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's his mission statement. That's what he is about And he doesn't need our help in accomplishing those tasks. What we want to do is, or we want to make sure that our hearts and minds are closed to him. He doesn't have any access to us, and we're not giving him any extra ammunition. He's got plenty. He doesn't need us to continually supply him with things that he's then going to shoot back at us. A couple of points over here for some of you may be thinking, can I get out the back door somehow without anybody noticing the whole idea of demons might not register for you. As Christians, Jesus talked about them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he dealt with demons on a regular basis. He dealt with them effectively and efficiently. And they, you know, that's that. So Jesus, he's the one that we follow. He believed in them. 
we do as well. For me, just experientially, it makes it a whole lot easier to explain the evil in the world, to say there's a devil and he has a host of wicked spirits who are working for him. That, to me, makes a whole lot more, that helps me make sense of a lot of the things that I read in the newspaper. So that's, we're just going to start from that worldview. If that's a tension point for you, I'd be happy to talk with you about that later. We're not talking exorcists. Nobody's head is spinning around. You're not talking in another voice. If you're a Christian, that can't happen. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. Um, He's taken up residence in your heart, and he's not going to share space with the demon. It's not going to happen. And so you don't have to worry about that would be called possession. That's not an option for people who are Christians at all. But as Christians, we can still be influenced by the demonic. We can be harassed. Some of you may feel oppressed, like you're getting pushed down. Um, We can be aggravated. And again, we can be um, influenced in multiple ways by them. And so what we want to say is, are there places where I've opened a door that the enemy has access to my thoughts, to my heart, to my behavior, any of those kind of things, a few that I've thought of, and you maybe can add some more if you want. Any spiritual activity that is not explicitly Christian, I would say run away from. Any spiritual activity that's not explicitly Christian, that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were engaging in a spiritual activity, this this feast that's dedicated to this idol, It's not explicitly Christian. It's dedicated to this. And Paul says, get out of there. So for us, anything that has to do with communicating with dead people, run away. Seances, you know, this kind of idea of there are these people who say mediums, you know, I can talk to people who've passed on. Run away. The Bible's very clear. Stay away from all of that. When we die as Christians, our spirit goes to be with God. He's not floating, your, it's, your loved ones are not hanging around your house. And I don't mean that sarcastically, honestly. I had a guy come up to me after the last service and say, this is the thing. You know, and I said, run away from that. If you need comfort, ask God for comfort. Don't try to find comfort in, in an experience with a dead relative. That's not good. There's only, there's Jesus spiritually, there's Jesus and there's everybody else. And that's where we want to go. And things that aren't explicitly Christian, by definition, are then not Christian. You're opening yourself up to supernatural power that is real and is not for you. And is not for your good. It's out to steal and kill and destroy from you. Anything that has to do with predicting the future, tarot cards, fortune telling, that type of stuff, stay away. Again, if you need to know what's going to happen, then ask God. He knows everything. And he'll let you know when he's ready. Don't go looking for other people to fill in the blanks. Sometimes that stuff's kind of fun and well, I'm just doing it on a lark. Don't. Again, you're opening yourself up to these spiritual forces. A lot of those guys are scammers. Some of them are not. They truly are tapped in to this supernatural power. And it's not Jesus. The Bible, again, very clearly says stay away from all of that. If you, want, if you need something about your future, ask the Holy Spirit. And he can tell you about your future. This, those two to me are blankets. I don't know that there's ever an exception to those. This last one to me is a little trickier, kind of the whole world of alternative medicine. I would say you've got to be very careful. You need to be very discerning. There's stuff that happens with your body. You know, if you want to take natural supplements, that's fine. If you want to eat only things that grow, that's fine. If chiropractic, that's 
I think all of that stuff that's body is okay. But when they start getting, they start talking about chi and aura, even some of the talk about energy, I think that you're moving from body to spirit at that point, and you've got to be very, very discerning. If you're going to put yourself under the care of somebody, you need to know where they stand spiritually. And you need to know what their worldview is. And you might say, well, I'm not buying in to all of that. But you're exposing yourself to all of that when you're putting yourself under their care. And so my encouragement to you would be just you need to ask the Lord, God, is this okay? Is it okay for me to be under the care of this practitioner doing these things? Again, I think there's, there's stuff physically that goes on and all that is, is okay. But when it shifts, it crosses that line to internal to spirit type stuff i think you got to be very very careful the roots of some of those um techniques ideas and practices are, are some eastern religions that are about that are very different from christianity so anything any spiritual activity that does not uh, it's not explicitly christian i'd say big red flag um open sin and by open i don't mean things that you've done out here I mean things that you haven't checked off your list yet. Things that are still un, they're still open, they're not dealt with in your heart. And that can look a lot of different ways. Um, sinful behaviors, oftentimes it's associated with shame. We just kind of want to take care of it, confess to God. We don't confess those things to other people because we're ashamed of them. And the enemy flogs us with that stuff on a regular basis. If you're not good enough, if they only knew, then they wouldn't be your friends. They'd never let you do fill in the blank if they knew the things that you've experienced, the things that you've done, all of that shame the enemy will use to keep us in chains. Again, we confess to God for forgiveness. We confess to one another to be healed. Oftentimes these sins are sexual in nature, which adds to the shame component. Um, Unforgiveness, that's another open sin. Uh, Bitter old men and bitter old women become bitter old men and bitter old women because they were wounded young men and wounded young women, and they never forgave the person who hurt them. And that's, that's the progression there. And so if, if you've been wronged in some way, and you're, you're holding a grudge, whether it's um, conscious or subconscious, if you're holding a grudge, that's an opening that the enemy will use to wreak havoc in your life. And you may be thinking, I'm just going to direct it to this one person. Everything else is good. He doesn't stay within the lines that you draw for him. So you open a door, he's not going to stay in that room of your house. He's coming for everything. And so you want to make sure that you've forgiven the people who've sinned against you. You don't have to do, that's not flippant, that's, you don't have to forgive, you know, off the top. You want to do the work to truly forgive, but you want to be moving towards that process where bitterness will set in and you're in a world of trouble. So there's these sinful behaviors that often are rooted in shame. That's kind of open sin, stuff we haven't dealt with. There's unforgiveness. That's another, that's actually a sin. That's an open sin, something we haven't dealt with. And then there's the thoughts that we have. And some of you, this is, this is it for you. you. You lose in your mind more days than you win in your mind. The enemy has convinced you of lies about yourself or of lies about God that you believe wholeheartedly. And they affect the way you relate to him and the way you, re- you relate to to other people he's great at mimicking your voice and so you think these things are true this is what you're saying it's him whispering these things in your mind you're a failure you can't do it god doesn't care about you god doesn't listen god doesn't change things you, you're not sorry enough to truly be forgiven that one's on the list that's never gets forgiven those people they're not really your friends all of those kind of lies 
those tapes that just kind of play in our mind all the time. That's open sin. It's a sin because you're disagreeing with God. Any of those thoughts that you have that don't agree with what's in here are wrong. And so what we want to do is line up our thoughts with the truth in the word. In any place where there are gaps, we want to adjust our thoughts to the truth of the word versus saying, well, that part of the Bible isn't true or it doesn't apply to me. So that, again, this whole, con- whole area of open sin, sin that we haven't dealt with, things done to us, that's another broad category. It opens up doors to the enemy. He doesn't play fair. None of this stuff, actually, that we're about to talk about is fair. Things that were said to you, Proverbs says that the tongue has the power of life and death, and some of you have experienced death from somebody else's words. They may have meant to hurt you. They might have just been angry. It might have been something said sarcastically. It might have been something said flippantly. But for whatever reason, that thing, it wedged into your heart, and you're living out of that. I talked to a girl a couple of weeks ago, and for her, somebody said, you know, because you're living in fear, that's evidence that you don't have faith. And that just got, the person was trying to encourage her, and it wormed its way into her heart. And so every time she experiences anything approaching worry, anxiety, fear, she locks up. Well, that means I don't have faith. And she gets in this wicked cycle. The person was well-meaning. They were wrong, but they were well-meaning. It may be the same thing for you. It might have been a coach. It might have been a parent. It might have been a spouse, a friend. For some of us, it's just it's strangers. Something was said. It's for whatever reason that it was a dart and it went right into our hearts. And that's the tape that plays for us. Things that were said to us. For some, this again is not fair. It's trauma. We're uh, a lot of times you see this with accidents. Somebody's in a horrible accident, and they become fearful at that point. The enemy takes advantage of this. It's not a sinful situation. It's just an accident. And the enemy takes advantage of that to begin to sow seeds of fear. And if we're not careful before long, fear has taken root in our heart and our mind, and it's traced back to this incident that's not spiritual one way or the other. It's just something that happened that for us was traumatic. Sometimes you see this with people with rejection. They, they didn't make something. They didn't get into the school they wanted. Or there was a person who they were pursuing who rejected them. And that gets in there. You know, we're all, we've all been rejected at some point. But for some people, some of those rejections really get into their heart. And they begin to see themselves as less than failures. All of those things which don't line up with what God says about them. Sins done to us. Again, where you're a victim of somebody else's sinful behavior. The enemy will use that. A lot of times there's shame associated with that as well, and it's something that you keep in the secret or in the dark. If they knew what had happened to me, then how would they view me and how would they see me and would I still fit and would they still love me and would they judge me and all of that kind of stuff that can cause you to pull back from relationships. All of those things are doors. that the, Those are access points for the enemy. And the last one I was thinking about was uh, kind of what we eat mentally and in terms of our heart. Paul says, think about things that are pure and think about things that are noble and things that are excellent and things that are praiseworthy and things that are admirable. Think about all of that. If you think about what a lot of us put in, what we watch, what we listen to, doesn't necessarily fit this picture of what Paul says we should be focused on. I'm not saying you can only watch Veggie Tales for the rest of your life at all. What I'm saying is what comes in affects particularly the images 
that we see. Those things get stuck in there. If you watch a whole lot of slasher movies, then don't be surprised if you have morbid thoughts. You're, that stuff is going in there. That's why pornography for guys is so devastating. Science has shown those images are sticky. They get in there, and those of you guys who've been exposed, they're hard to get out. The enemy can use that stuff. He'll play that videotape in your mind for months and years down the road. And so we want to be careful about the things that we're choosing to feed on, particularly, again, things that come through our through our eyes. What are we looking at? What are we watching? Again, it's, I'm not saying it's, it's Christian or nothing. I'm saying use some discernment and, and recognize their consequences to what we consume, particularly when it comes to entertainment in media. I don't have hard and fast rules on any of that. I would say if it's if it's above rated R, then there's no reason for you to watch it for sure. But, you know, I, I, you need to be led by the Spirit in those things. And different people have different uh, levels of sensitivity to that. There are different things, you know, like in our house, anything that has to do with a kid being kidnapped, it's off limits for us. It doesn't matter if it's an after-school special. We can't watch it because Misty, for her, that's that's no. It doesn't matter what it's rated. It doesn't matter if it's a cartoon. It doesn't matter if I say... I, that, they get the kid back at the end. It doesn't matter. So for us, all of that stuff is off. That might not be an issue for you. There might be other things for you that are an issue. It has nothing to do with the motion picture ratings or it's just for you, your sensitivity. You know what stirs you up. One of the things you can look at, if you struggle, if you have nightmares, try to see, is there a connection with, with what you watched? If some of your dreams are not good. You might not call it a nightmare, but you're pretty glad nobody else was a part of that dream. What you might want to say is, am I watching anything leading into that that maybe is, it's just, it's ammo. That's all. I'm not saying the enemy is polluting all of your dreams. I'm just saying, is, is that the stuff that's going in your mind? Are you either giving him ammo or your subconscious ammo to then torment you when you're sleeping? Kind of overall, if you want to know, I don't know if I have an access point. I think I'm good. None of those things really resonated with me. I think I'm okay. What I would say is, this is a technical term, is do you wallow? And if you wallow, then most likely you have an access point. If there's an area of your life where you continually struggle, a particular set of thoughts that you continue to have, feelings, behaviors, if there's something that has you stuck, again, that's you're wallowing in something, then I would say most likely there's a supernatural component that's attached itself and that that is causing you to, to struggle. It's something you can't kick on your own. You need the Holy Spirit to come in and to set you free from those oppression, from that oppression. And you need to close that door, and the Lord will help you do that. So again, that would just be my encouragement as we uh, move into a time of taking communion. Just for to ask yourself, are there areas where you would say, you know, I continually struggle with, I continually wrestle with, I can continually worry about, I'm continually anxious over, I continually fear that I can. I keep doing this behavior and I don't want to do it. Let's look at that and see if you've opened up a door in your life. And it could have been 20 years ago, 25 years ago. It might have, again, the enemy doesn't play fair. Any advantage he can take, any opening, he's going to squeeze through. And our job is just to make sure the doors of the house are actually closed up. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to take communion. Uh, the way we take communion here is you'll come forward, break off a piece of bread, dip it in juice. There's a gluten-free station right there that will stay on that table. 
We'll have two other stations right here. If you're helping with communion, if you could come forward, that'd be great. Um, What I want you to do is think about for communion, this whole idea again. Paul says when we take communion, we're participating not just with one another, but with Jesus. We're sharing in the benefits of the cross. And so we want to grab onto that and recognize we're not just eating some bread that's been dipped in grape juice. We're not just even just remembering what Jesus did for us. We, in some senses, are participating spiritually with him. We are receiving, as I eat this food, I can receive spiritually the benefits of his death and resurrection. So come forward with that in mind. What do you need from him this morning? If you don't need anything, what do you want to thank him for this morning and recognize in taking this, these elements, you're participating not just with us, but with him. We're going to have ministry teams in the corner. If you want prayer for anything, we'd love to pray for you. If, you just, if, you're, if you're thinking, hey, there's, a, there's an access point for me, let us pray that God would close that door and that any areas where maybe have been uh, vacated, that the Holy Spirit would come and, and fill those places in your heart and in your mind. And then we'll have, uh, Jen Odell's going to give a Lent devotion and we're going to close with worship. And in worship, what I want you thinking about again is this whole idea of we get to participate with God. We're not just singing songs to the ceiling and we're not just we're not even just singing songs to God. We actually get to have fellowship with him, uh, engagement with him during worship. And so I want you to walk in with that mindset, that understanding and that expectation. So you guys can stand. I'm going to pray and y'all can come forward uh, as you will. Yeah. Father, we do thank you for